right, as we've been doing in our study of Ecclesiastes, we'll do a little bit more of a, uh, input from everybody and not just me talking. So um, turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 if you're not there yet. And the title that's in the bulletin is something I was going back and forth on related to the passage. Work is a very significant theme in this chapter, but there's also a very strong emphasis on uh, this idea of aloneness or the need for companionship, those sorts of ideas. And so I think we can certainly see both in this passage. And uh, as we go through it, I'll leave it up to your judgment, which is the more prominent theme as we work through it. But I think we'll certainly see both in this section. We didn't read the first three verses, so let me start by reading those, and then we can talk about them together. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So when Solomon talks about acts of oppression, what are some of the things you think that he might have in mind? Okay, slavery. What else? How many of you have ever done? Sorry, go ahead. Okay, good. And maybe as a modern parallel, not specifically what the passage is saying, but just something we can relate to more easily. How many of you have ever done? some sort of work and then someone else is taking credit for you or sort of robbed you of, of what was probably rightfully due you. Okay, that's certainly a reality, right? Um, what, if, um, what if for the kids, have you ever had someone say something that was unkind to you at school? I guess if you're homeschooled, it's possible, but then that's more of a family issue. But. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. Is it possible that people will do or say things that are cruel and acts of oppression, even if they are seemingly less significant, although the hurt and the frustration is certainly real? There's a lot of things where they should be one way, and they are, in fact, another way, and that's what Solomon is highlighting. And when he says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, what's a natural response to injustice, based on that phrase. Maybe, but for the people who are being oppressed. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 sadness. Uh, grief, a sense of loss, a sense of frustration. And the thing that he highlights here is it says they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. The they at the end of, the, of verse 1 is the people who are being oppressed, not that the oppressors had no one to comfort them. And so he's sort of repeating that phrase, I think, to, to emphasize it. It's a, a really terrible thing if injustice is, happens 
It's even worse if it happens and you've got no one to talk to about it, no one to help you, no one to encourage you in that sort of circumstance. But then verses 2 and 3 seem to take a very, a very dark and discouraging turn. So what does Solomon say is potentially a natural conclusion in verse 2? Okay. Yeah. Now, I think we know from the rest of Scripture that he is not, that if we take the whole theme of the Bible, certainly the emphasis of the Bible is not that death is the solution to suffering. All Solomon is saying is when you're out of the reach of those who are oppressing you, you're not facing their oppression anymore. But then he even builds on that in verse 3. Better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Is it possible that someone's life is so <coughs> difficult, so miserable, so full of oppression that it could be rightfully said? It's almost better as if they never had to go through all of that. That's the thing that I think Solomon wants us to wrestle with. How then do we take that to our modern day situations? If someone is going through that, they need encouragement. They need help. Because if, they, if someone finds themselves in a spot where they don't have anybody to encourage them, and they're overwhelmed by despair, God may put you in a place to encourage a person in that sort of situation. And so we need to be aware of what each other is going through. We need to be looking for ways to encourage each other. Because there's a lot of wrong things that go on in this world. There's a lot of things that are unjust, ranging from some of the, the frustrating but less important ones, like someone says an unkind word to you once, versus someone that's just constantly mistreated in some way. And so we need to be aware of those realities. We need to be considering the difficulty of them. We need to be looking for how we can minister to people in those sorts of situations. The next section seems like he is turning to a different subject, but it's not disconnected from the first one. The first one was there are those who have power and are mistreating people who are alone and weak in some way. The second section is talking about an aloneness that flows out of the envy and jealousy that all of us experience at different points. So when he says in verse 4, every labor and every skill which is done is the result of or is rivalry between a man and his neighbor, what's he saying about why we are often motivated to work harder? be better than the guy over there. He has that. I want that. So I'm going to work harder than them so I can have either that or a nicer that than he has. Right? So it can apply to things. It can apply to our position. It can apply to our reputation. It can apply to a whole bunch of other things. Why should we work? Because I think that this is sort of what 
I mean, wisdom literature keeps touching on creation themes. Why did God make us to work? Okay, to use our time wisely. Why else? Why did God make us to work? Okay. Keep us out of trouble to a certain extent, sure. Why else? Yeah. Okay. Okay, and that's a common theme in Ecclesiastes. Who receives honor when we work well? God does, yeah. And so, theoretically, we could work because we derive rightful pleasure from it. We could work to bring glory to God. We could work because it's one of the things God has made us to do. Or, as Ecclesiastes says, we can work simply because we want to beat out the next guy. And that, I think he's saying, is a wrong motivation because he says at the end of verse 4, this is vanity and striving after wind. In what sense is it empty or insubstantial or somewhat foolish to work only to do better than someone else? What's that? Okay. Sure, sure, but 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 why? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Right. So the focus instead of being on me pleasing God is on me pleasing myself. Uh, what sort of sins does it lead to if my goal is always to do better than the next person? Greed, pride. What about for the kids? If you want to do better than someone else, what might you be tempted to do? Okay. Any of the kids have any further thoughts? If you want to do better on a test than your brother or your sister or your classmate, what might you be tempted to do? Okay, undermine their efforts, all right. What else? Let's say you were working a job, like let's say you were working for somebody and maybe they were, I don't know, having you clean out their shed and you're working on it with somebody else. What might be something that you would do to make the person working with you look bad and to make yourself look better. Yeah. Okay, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What would be a wrong way to go about it? Those would both be good things that you could do. What would be a wrong way to do it? Maybe they get their part all clean and you make a mess in it right before whoever's checking up on your work comes out. I'm not trying to give you ideas. I'm just trying to illustrate the point. Uh, or maybe you decide that you don't want to do the work, so you go off and do something fun for a bit. And when the person comes back and says, why haven't you gotten the work done, you lie about what you were doing. <coughs> I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we can 
approach work wrongly. It says, um, so we have, we have this first extreme is, I work simply for the sake of working, I work really hard, and it's all selfish. What's the other wrong extreme from working really hard? Look at verse 5. What's the opposite of working really, really hard? Yeah, not working at all. And look how it describes him in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So it's almost like he doesn't want to work, but he's got to eat. And it's like he's sitting there, like, chewing on his hands or something because he's starving, doesn't have any food because he's not willing to work. It's destructive. It's bad, right? So we might say this is a bad thing, working, 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 only for the sake of working. Well, this is also a bad thing, not working at all. Verse 6. Notice again, it picks up this idea of the hand, right? On the one hand, you have the fool who is almost like eating his hands because he does, he's being lazy. But what does verse 6 say? One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. So there's a funny kind of math that's going on here, right? In what sense is one better than two? Okay, when it honors God, yeah? Okay. How many of you, yeah, Paul. Okay, good. How many have ever heard the saying, one bird in the hand is worth two in the bush? Okay, that's kind of a proverb. Some of the kids are looking at me like, what are you talking about? If you're trying to catch a bird, is it better to have one bird in your net or two birds out there flying around that you can't reach? One bird in the net, okay? That's what Solomon is saying. He said, he's saying you can be chasing after more and more and more and more and more, and what will you have? You will have labor and striving after wind. Because for one thing, when you get the more, what's your response? I want more than that. Okay? And how could the one be better than the two? It's almost this imagery that you have one hand that is resting, and then you have another hand that is working. Instead of working with both hands, the imagery that he's painting is almost like you have, and this is not exactly what he's saying, but it's almost like theoretically, maybe this will illustrate the point, you're focused on God with what you do with this hand, you're focused on the tasks you're supposed to do with this hand, and in so doing, you are more at peace, more fulfilled in your work, than if you completely neglected God and everything he's called you to do and just spent all your time working and chasing after. It's not a perfect illustration or parallel, but maybe that helps us understand it a little bit. So, when it comes to work, there's two wrong motivations. I'm going to be selfish by pouring my whole life into work just for the sake of work for myself, or I'm going to be really lazy and not work, also because it pleases me. 
The biblical response is what Paul talks about, and I think it's 1 Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What does Paul say there? Do we bring anything into this world? No. Do we take anything out? No. Um, there's a joke about a lady whose husband was um, coming near the end of his life, and he made a promise, I want you to bury all my money with me. So, being a good wife, she said yes. After her friends say, how could you do such a thing? Give up all of your money. She said, it's okay. I wrote him a check. If he can cash it, he can have it all. <laughs> that is the emptiness of living for money. We can't hang on to it. We have it for a little while. It doesn't serve us past this life. So if we pour all our lives into it, that's an empty life. Which leads us to the next section. I looked again at vanity under the sun. First example, people who are being mistreated and there's no one to help them. Second example, people who are either working and burning themselves out, chasing things selfishly, or people who are being lazy also through selfishness, instead of being content with what God has given them and approaching life with a right motivation for work to please God, to enjoy the fruits of labor. Third example, people who work and work and work, they have no one to share it with. Look at verse 8. There was a man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, but there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. He never asked, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. There's nothing wrong with working if you are a single person. There's a variety of circumstances that mean you're by yourself in the way that this describes. You're not yet married. Something happens to your spouse. Um, uh, just a variety of circumstances along those lines. So there's nothing wrong with providing for yourself and meeting your needs if you're the only one in your household. But there's a very real sense in which if you exceed what is needed just to meet basic necessities, who are you going to share it with? If you only have money and all your needs are met and you keep chasing after more and more and more and more, what are you going to do with it? Now, what are some right things that you could do with it if you have more than you need? Yes? Give it to the church. What else? Okay. Yeah. You could use it to help the needs of other people. I mean, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about that idea. Sometimes people are abundantly blessed. They have more than they need. They can help those who don't have what they need at a given point in time. At the same time, there's also a, a real sense in which when you get to a certain level of, of having things, what do you do with it? It can become as much of a burden as it is a blessing, especially if you have the wrong attitude and the wrong approach with it. And I don't know that we're all necessarily in that spot. I'm just saying, this is what Solomon's looking at. He's just saying, when is enough enough? 
And if you're not going to use it to help anybody else, why are you pouring your life into it? So then he talks about the advantages of companionship of if you do have someone to share it with. Verse 9, two are better than one. Why? What does it say? Why would that be, though? Okay, two can do. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Good. I don't have a ton of experience with this, but there were um, there were a couple of times when I was messing with the old truck that I had. I had Kelly come out because I was trying to replace um, something down underneath it, and she had to get in there and crank the wheel so that I could get all the bolts lined up. I couldn't be up there cranking the wheel and down under there getting the bolts put in. And so you need more than one person to be more effective, typically. Sometimes more than just two people also. He explains it further in verse 10. If either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. Think about um, some of these stories about people who go off hiking on their own in, in the wilderness somewhere. Nothing like morally wrong with it, but you fall off a hillside, you're kind of stuck, you know? Um, there was a guy who recently got attacked by a mountain lion and then hiked like three miles further down the road. And he made it, but he might easily not made it either, you know? And so Solomon is saying, if there's more than one person, not only is there better profit in your labor, but there's better safety, security, ability for help when you need it. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? How many of you have ever been on a cold night, and no matter how many blankets you wrapped up in, you are still cold? Yeah. And if the whole family piled in together on the sofa and got under a blanket, it's a lot warmer, right? I mean, that's kind of the point that he's making, right? And then verse 12, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. All sorts of interesting and probably figurative directions people take that last phrase. A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. But apply it physically speaking. If you have three people working at a task, three people united in a purpose, it's much more effective than just a single person. If we take it more broadly and bring it forward to the present day and consider even this sort of a setting, if one of us faces a temptation, are we more or less likely to give in if we're by ourselves? We're more likely to give in, right? Now, there's always going to be moments when we're alone. And I'm not saying we can completely avoid those. But if we have the reality and the recognition that we're part of something, that it's not just me by myself, but that it's all of us together, there is a strength in that that I think illustrates the point that Solomon is making. And so along those lines, I think we need to be willing to be open and honest with each other, not to the extent that we say, uh, I was really greedy about this, and we go into such detail that we tempt the other person to be greedy. But if we say, if we recognize 
I'm going through a difficult time, whether it be with temptation or discouragement or whatever it might be, be humble enough to talk to other people and say, pray for me. Be caring enough with other people to say, here's how God's encouraging me. And when we do that sort of thing with each other, then we have that sense that we are not alone. And if one of us is oppressed, if one of us is discouraged, if one of us is tempted to sin, we have the companionship and the strength of all of the rest of us together to help us. And I think that's why it says in Hebrews, don't forsake assembling yourselves together, and you need each other more as the day draws near, and take care that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do all those things tie into our fellowshipping together in the church? Because God didn't create us to do this alone. He created us to do it with each other. And um, this is something we can all grow in. Because we don't want to admit that we fail. We don't want to admit that we need help. We don't want to admit that we do wrong. But when we do, and when we follow biblical patterns of, of, of growing, then we have strength. Solomon's fourth example. We think that if, uh, if we were in a position of power and wealth, all these problems of loneliness would go away. But look at his illustration here. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he's born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. Some people have speculated that maybe Solomon is alluding to what happened with Joseph. Possibility, I don't know that we can say that with certainty but we definitely have a pharaoh who didn't have a solution to his problem and a poor lad who was in prison who had wisdom to be able to answer that question with God's help. But even if that is what's being alluded to, what happened after time passed? Was Joseph remembered or not remembered? He's not remembered. Remember what it says in Exodus? A time arose when they forgot Joseph. So whether it be Joseph or another similar situation, we think that if we could just rise to power and wealth and all those sorts of things, then all these problems of loneliness and, and being isolated would go away. But the reality is, sometimes they increase. They can increase because the people who approach someone in that sort of a position are really just going after that person because of what they can do for them. Sometimes they increase because there's great responsibility and burden, and they're not as free to do things as someone who doesn't have all that responsibility and burden. And so, if we look at the beginning, verses 1 through 3, we see the person who's over here who's being oppressed. We might think the solution is they go from being the oppressed to being the one who has the power to oppress. And Solomon says, 
You're not going to win either way. Don't put your hope in your position and your status in society because it's not going to solve all these problems for you. You can be just as lonely being here and being mistreated as being here and having seemingly all the power in the world. So this chapter doesn't seem to have a whole lot of doesn't seem to have a whole lot of hopefulness, does it? Part of that is because we're looking at one section of a larger book. Part of that is because God reveals some of that hope, I think, in further detail as we go throughout the Bible. So as I already talked about a little bit earlier with connection with the church, if we're not supposed to put our hope in getting out of a situation of oppression, being in a position of power, if we're not supposed to pour all our effort into work, if we're not supposed to have this fruitless pursuit of things, just have more and more things without really thinking about what the end goal is, then what should our attitude toward all these things be? Our attitude should be, who do I work for? Who do I work for? I work for God, which is what it says in Colossians. Work heartily, fervently, with all your strength to please God, not other people. When it comes to situations of suffering, what does Peter say? Something about a creator. What does he say? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator, just like Jesus did. And when it comes to this idea of isolation, we tend to look at life as strictly in terms of, or it's possible to look at life strictly in terms of, here is my immediate family in terms of like, Here's who I'm related to by birth and by, by blood and all those sorts of ideas. But in the church, we have a sense of family that crosses over all those sorts of boundaries. In the church, we have the opportunity to have the strength of numbers to accomplish God's purposes. And so we may feel alone. We may be approaching work with the wrong attitude. We may be frustrated with all of these things in life. The solution to that is to say, what does God say about it? Instead of walling ourselves off, opening ourselves up, and being connected with the people around us that are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that God has put us with. And then we can say, as godliness with contentment that's great gain, we can say, I may be going through an unbearably difficult time, but God can comfort me and I can comfort others. We can say, God has blessed me with a position and responsibility and it's overwhelming but I have other people who can help and encourage me along those lines. And we can say, there's things God has called me to do that I can't do by myself. God's given me spiritual gifts that I can't exercise when I'm sitting at home by myself. God's 
given me a task to take the gospel around the world, and I may not be able to go around the world, but I can partner with other people who do. God has called me to worship, and I can worship better with the rest of the people he's placed me with than I can just by myself. And so, the goal is not some sort of far eastern, we just sort of all like melt together into one thing. There's a sense of individual being in the church, but there's also a sense of being connected with each other in a way that's very different from our American individualism. I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody else. And so we have to fight against that tendency. We need each other. We need God. And when we recognize how all that works, we can be satisfied and overcome, at least in some ways, the frustrating emptiness of life. Let's pray. Lord, you... You know the brokenness of this world. We've all seen it to a greater or lesser extent. If we are in those circumstances, help us to seek your help. If we see people in those circumstances, help us to show love to them. It's easy for us to adopt the attitude of the people around us and work for the sake of work without really thinking about why we're working and for it to become purely selfish because of envy for people around us, or to give up on it and just sort of sit around and, and wait for things to happen, and neither is a good approach to it, but instead, Lord, we ought to do the task that you've set before us, be content if our needs are met, and as you bless us, look for opportunities to serve those around us. Lord, we can be alone and isolated for a variety of reasons. And we can again try to deal with that loneliness by pouring ourselves into some activity. Or we can say, who has God put around me? What group has God placed me in, specifically in the church, so that I can find the hope and the help that I need? We might think that if I had a little bit more power, a little bit more money, that all my troubles would be gone. But Lord, I think you show us from this passage that that doesn't solve our problem. We need you. We need each other. We need to find hope in living as you've called us to live, not in just going through the same sorts of activities that people around us who don't know you do, and for the same reasons, help us to live with right motivations, with right actions, and with right love for one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.